Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of harm against minors, medical cruelty, forced pregnancy, genocide, pandemic, and mutilation, as well as discussions of sexual violence and war crimes. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Ruby had told her brother Caleb several times that stair climbing was not a tourist activity. But as always, he didn't listen. When else were they going to get to climb a mountain in the middle of a city like Tokyo? Ruby countered that it wasn't really a mountain. It was a set of stairs going up a hill surrounded by cherry trees. She complained the whole way up. But when they reached the top, it was beautiful. The soft petals floated on the breeze like butterflies and the skyscrapers that surrounded the park glinted in the light of golden hour. Ruby begrudgingly admitted her mistake. As if in response, the wind on the hill carried a strange sound to her ears. A man was crying. No, more than crying, wailing. Like the world was coming to an end, and each bit of destruction was being inflicted on his person alone. Ruby hated people, always had, But Caleb was a softie. He nearly fell over the railing searching for the source of the sound. He called out, offering help, but the trees were still. The only motion was the cherry blossoms still falling. Ruby told him to let the sad man be. He probably just needed to blow off some steam. They heard the sound again, echoing from a bend at the middle of the stairs on the hill. Caleb rushed down the stairs as Ruby tried to call him back. But there was no one there. Just the sound of weeping. Ruby's heart pounded as Caleb wheeled around, searching, backing up for a better view. She watched helplessly as he lost his footing. He'd never conceded that the so-called mountain was only a hill. But even if it was just a hill, the fall was enough to leave him broken at the bottom as the weeping drifted away on the wind. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Tokyo's Toyama Park, a metropolitan green space hiding the evidence of horrifying war crimes, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. We'll begin to dig up Toyama Park after this. By day, Toyama Park is a popular tourist destination. Set in the heart of Tokyo's Shinjuku district, this urban oasis offers sports fields, picnicking, and playground areas, as well as a 44-meter mini-mountain called Mount Hakone. In spring, the small hike to the top is one of the best ways to view the cherry blossoms in Tokyo. But visiting at night 
is another story. Visitors have reported strange lights flickering between the trees and the sounds of a man sobbing echoing through the eastern side of the park. It seems odd, until you learn what was there before. Toyama Park was built on top of medical research facilities that were dismantled after World War II, and damaged skeletons of suspicious origin were found near the park. Their origins are far more frightening than any ghost story. Lei had been walking around for days on a wounded limb. When the sky had exploded with wheat and rice, she thought the Japanese forces were showing them mercy. Perhaps they would be able to find a way towards peace. But it hadn't been an offering of goodwill. It took several hours for her to feel them. The small black insects that jumped across her skin while she tried to chase them away. Her hands were never fast enough to swap them. Lei's mother told her not to worry. Fleas were itchy, but they could be treated. She'd have a folk remedy ready by the time Lei came home. But her leg wasn't just itching. Soon it started to hurt. A faint tickle that turned into a boiling cauldron. She wanted to scratch the skin clear off. Then she would be free of the pain. Again, her mother told her not to worry. Lei woke up to swollen yellow pustules. They bulged with fluid. She could hear it sloshing around with each step she took. She could barely walk across the yard. Not only were the sores painful, they sapped her of her energy. Her leg became too weak to sustain her weight. Yellow pus burst from the sores and dripped down her skin. She struggled to make her way through the village with the aid of crutch. The entire village was suffering from the same affliction, and Lei was one of the lucky ones. Other villagers had their limbs go necrotic. The tissue turned dark, decaying while still on the bone. She could feel hers as it undulated with pain. Each movement was sheer agony. The Japanese occupiers had withdrawn a few weeks before the rice fell from the sky, but when they returned, they promised they would help. She didn't trust them. She'd always been taught to mistrust such men. When she was younger, she would take advantage of the differences between their two languages to turn a supposed word of deference in Japanese into a curse in her own. They could never tell the difference. It was to be her only victory. In the end, she didn't have a choice on whether she would be saved or not. The Japanese occupiers loaded up the villagers who could still be moved and drove to the coast. She was blindfolded during the last part of the drive. She didn't understand what sort of hospital needed to hide its location. Manchuria had no ability to fight back. There was no one to tell. The truck stopped in the darkness. Large institutional buildings crept toward the wide open sky. Lei told herself the area was remote to keep patients safe. They were already at risk for worse ailments. Isolation was wise. There were no signs on the building, no names, just patrolling guards and three numbers, 731. They walked Lei to a small room. She waited and waited, tending to her wound as best she could on her own. 
Another pustule seemed ready to burst. She was bracing for another spike of pain when two orderlies grabbed her, carrying her toward the operating wing. She protested, but they didn't look at her. They didn't speak to her. To them, she didn't exist. The sterile room had all the starch white and stainless steel trappings she'd come to expect, but the doctors didn't look at their patients here. No one smiled or asked her what was wrong with her leg. They already seemed very sure. She wished they would explain it to her. Lei didn't know much Japanese, but they seemed to be calling her Log. She tried to explain that her name was Lei. No one listened to her. The guards strapped her to a gurney. She asked for a doctor to talk to her. She was scared. She didn't even understand what had happened to her leg in the first place. Couldn't they tell her how they were going to fix it? The doctor smiled sadly. He said they weren't trying to fix her. They were trying to understand. He shoved a damp cloth over her mouth, and the world went hazy. In her mind, his scalpel was several hundred feet high. The blades were as big as shark teeth raking against her skin. She felt them close around her leg. Yellow and red liquid sprayed through the air. Relief was the first thing she felt as she snapped awake. The infection was leaving her as it splattered across the protective equipment the staff wore. The pressure had lessened for a moment. So had the pain. Her adrenaline faded as fear set in. She struggled against the restraints as she saw the grayish-white flash of her own bone beneath the saw. She didn't want to see this. The pain was unbearable. Searing and sharp, it set her nerves on fire. She tried to scream, but the cloth around her mouth muffled all sound. They would not even give her the dignity of being heard. Just this once, she had to be heard by them. She wanted them to know how much she hated them. The doctor met her eyes for a moment. She pushed against her restraints. It didn't make a difference. He registered her discomfort. Then, he continued to saw. Lay had killed her fair share of farm animals for food. She decapitated fish as they tried to flop back to the sea. She had heard the sound of bone against metal before. She just never expected the bone to be her own. The room swam in front of her eyes until she saw nothing but a black void. She could hear the doctors around her and the saw against her leg, but she couldn't see any of it anymore. She wondered briefly if this was how the cycle of reincarnation started. Your soul slipped away from the world but could still hear the echoes of it. But it seemed her soul wasn't ready to leave. Something wrapped around her leg she could feel it pulling the skin taut, but she couldn't figure out where the pressure was coming from. The weight of her limb was uneven, unfamiliar. As her vision started to return, she saw the bottom half of her leg laying on a metal table a few feet away. She could still feel her toes wiggling, but they were on a tray now, so far away from where they should be. The pain was still there, pulsing through her, but she had survived. She could learn to live with this. She could overcome the next obstacle. 
The soldiers had been truthful. They had forced her here for care, and she had received it. The doctor removed her cloth, muttering to himself. Tears of relief streamed down her face. She could kiss him for saving her from the infection. Now she could begin to heal. Then, white-gloved hands slipped a rope around her neck and squeezed. In 1938, the Manchurian region of China was occupied by the Japanese Imperial Army. The world was at war, and Japan was in constant battle with its rivals in the region, including China, Korea, and Russia. Microbiologist Shiro Ishii was tapped to run a new military research division out of the region. The so-called Ishii Detachment had the express purpose of developing biological weapons, the clandestine nature of the work would give Ishii's department a new title, Unit 731. The majority of Unit 731's operations were carried out and around the Manchurian city of Harbin, with Chinese and Korean victims of the Japanese occupation as unwilling test subjects. Ishii and his teams experimented with airdropping plague-infested fleas into towns on grains of rice and planned to carry out a similar operation in San Diego in the mid-1940s. Unit 731's researchers intentionally infected their prisoners with various diseases, then performed vivisection on them in order to study the effects of the sickness on their organs. Patients were exposed to the elements to study the effects of frostbite, and women were forcibly impregnated in order to study the damage poison gas and other pathogens had on their fetuses. The researchers called the prisoners marutas, or logs, in order to distance themselves from the suffering they wrought. If any of these poor people survived their ordeal, they were strangled. The corpses of Unit 731's victims were sent to Tokyo for analysis at a secret research facility, adjacent to the land that would become Toyama Park. Up next, the evidence of Unit 731's crimes. Hi, it's Greg. Have you heard the newest Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets, these presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. The land that is now called Toyama Park used to be adjacent to a top secret research facility 
one that studied corpses sent to them by the infamous Unit 731. We don't have a good estimate of how many victims were sent to the Tokyo facility, and the number of Chinese, Korean, Russian, and Allied prisoners of war Unit 731 experimented on in general is impossible to ascertain. The lowest estimate stands at 3,000, but some historians argue for numbers as high as 250,000. The Harbin China facility used by the Japanese has been transformed into a memorial for Unit 731's victims, but the majority of those victims have never been found. The final analysis for many of these experiments was carried out in the covert facility in Tokyo's Shinjuku district, but that made disposal of evidence difficult after Japan's surrender in August 1945. Desperate times, the medical staff decided, called for desperate measures. Keiko worked hard to become a nurse. She had always wanted to help people. Her father was a doctor, and she looked up to him since she was little. Now she was following in his footsteps in her own small way. Her interest was more in tending to the wounded than being the one to fix them. She did not want to hold their lives in her hands. She wanted to hold their hearts, reassure them that they were all well cared for. There was an abundance of work because of the war, but it wasn't the kind of work she enjoyed. She held too many patients' hands as they cried and screamed and begged for their lives to end. She watched them bleed out in front of her, their eyes staring at nothing. The Emperor's surrender was more than a relief. It was salvation. Keiko was transferred to the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department in order to prepare the city for the Allied occupiers. She had no experience with any work like this, but she assumed her superiors knew what they were doing. They told her to enter the medical school around midnight. She was no stranger to late shifts, but this one was different. She was warned to never repeat what she saw. She expected to be handed a mountain of case files to analyze and catalog. Epidemiology was based around speed. Patients needed to be contained quickly in order to prevent the spread of infection. But she didn't have a single case file waiting for her as she entered her workspace. Instead, there was a large metal bin at the center of the white room. The smell was familiar. Death. It had a sour note to it that would linger in the back of her throat for hours. The door slammed shut behind her. Keiko took several deep breaths. She would not be frightened. She had endured much worse than a sudden noise. Slowly, she turned around. Another woman was standing by the entrance. She introduced herself as Cheo. Her assignment had shifted to the epidemic department several weeks ago, so she would be training Keiko. Cheo's words were easy to follow, but her tone of voice lacked emotion. Keiko had heard it before from her co-workers and patients. A part of them was locked away in order to keep living. Keiko asked Cheo what they were doing here, gesturing to the room that was empty, except for the large metal bins. Cheo said only one word, disposal. Surely there were people better suited for disposal than two nurses. The government official who had sworn her to secrecy had a very imposing air about him. She would say nothing about the job unless Cheo said something first. Keiko asked Cheo what epidemic they'd been trying to contain. 
Cheo shrugged. All that predated her involvement. The dim halogen lights hummed as Keiko pulled off the cloth to find a nauseating mosaic of body parts. The smell was almost too much. Her stomach twisted and turned. Keiko held her breath, stifling her lungs against the foul scent. Usually, an epidemic was characterized by a specific set of symptoms, but these body parts had nothing in common. Spleens were next to severed legs and small slivers of eyeball. Yellow pustules crusted over on the skin that she could see. The organs had gone necrotic. The telltale marks of gangrene had settled into one swollen and discolored foot. There was evidence of frostbite, too, even though this was Tokyo in the height of summer. It didn't look like any epidemic Keiko had ever seen or read about. But in some ways, it looked like all of them. The pustules of bubonic plague, the black skin of frostbite. Then there were the mangled surgical scars. She turned back to look at Cheo, but the other woman's face was blank. Keiko had no choice but to tighten her mask and start pushing one of the metal bins forward so they could begin their work. Cheo grabbed the other side of the bin. They pulled it out of the medical bay. The body should have been cremated. That would help with containment. But Cheo was directing her toward the green lawn that stood off to the side of the medical school. Keiko could feel the bile rising in her throat. She both knew and was terrified of what she would see when she finally crossed the green. Almost a third of the lawn was a massive hole, a grave. Cheo's gloved hands reached into the metal bin and plucked out a spleen. She dropped it into the hole, watching it split open and spill clumps of dried blood across the dirt. Keiko had always been taught to keep an emotional distance from a patient when she worked in them. It was a measure to help keep clear boundaries, allowing them to provide the best possible care. Keiko had always struggled with it, but never as much as watching a nurse drop a human organ like an ice cream cone on a hot sidewalk. Cheo turned to face Keiko, telling her it was her turn to show that she knew what needed to be done. No part of this felt right, but Keiko didn't have a choice. She couldn't risk her family for people she clearly could no longer help. She picked up a severed leg. The skin started to fall off the bone. Keiko acted quickly, flinging the body part into the hole. It landed with another nauseating splat. Cheo turned back to her work. Keiko grabbed another body part and continued the process. A hand grabbed hers. She tried to muffle her yelp, but Cheo was on her before she realized it, reassuring her that it was just her imagination. These bodies had been sitting for days. There was no life left in any of them. Keiko nodded, but she could still feel fingers tightening around her wrist. She could see the limb holding onto her hand. She wasn't sure if she could believe her eyes. She stole a glance at Cheo as she shuffled body parts around in the bin, hoping to find enough of the arm to make sense of this strange turn of events. Instead, she found a shoulder. The shoulder led up to a head. One eye had been carved away, but the other remained, 
wide open and focusing on her. She stared back at the still eye, trying to convince herself that she could turn away from the frozen gaze without dooming herself to some kind of curse. The body couldn't move. It couldn't see. But then, the cloud hiding the moon floated on, and the pupil contracted in the new light. Keiko tried to move away from the bin, but the grip was too strong. She pulled again. A ragged moan echoed around the cheap metal. That was enough to get Cheo to notice. Keiko was close to tears. The man was holding her so tightly that she would have finger-shaped bruises in the morning, if she was able to survive that long. She tried to push the remains of the pile over his face. She hoped she could use gravity to get him to let go. But the dead man's strength was growing. His half-torn fingernails ripped at her skin as he pulled her toward the pile of corpses. Keiko tumbled forward. She grasped desperately at the rim of the bin, screaming for Cheo's help. But the force was too much. She lost her grip, falling into the slippery, stinking mess of body parts. Dead tissue and dried blood found its way into her mouth as she sank, unable to fight the weight of the distended torsos and gangrenous limbs. She saw the tormented eyes of a foreigner staring back at her. Keiko whispered that she was sorry. It didn't seem to matter. He opened his mouth and started to tear into her skin. Her body sank further and further into the pit of death she was supposed to clean up. She sputtered and spat out some of the mess as she yelled one more time for Cheo. But a gap in the writhing limbs showed her a strange sight. Cheo had gone back to work, as if Keiko was never there. Keiko screamed for help, begging and then cursing her. But it didn't matter in the end. Cheo didn't care. Perhaps she didn't see her at all. The wall of suffering in the pit, now just an abstraction to her. Finally, the bin tipped, and the wave of carnage carried Keiko into the hole. Keiko was buried. The hole was filled in. Sod covered the dirt, and landscaping began. Then, in time, a playground was built over it. In 2006, a former nurse named Toyoishi came forward to claim that she and her colleagues had been ordered to bury corpses, bones, and body parts on the grounds of a former medical school in Tokyo after Japan's surrender in World War II. Though they technically had a mandate to begin investigation immediately, the Japanese government delayed their archaeological survey by over five years in order to allow a housing development to finish. When they finally did begin to dig, they found skulls with drill holes and other damaged bones. The results of the survey are controversial, and the investigators themselves ruled that the remains were not connected to Unit 731 or any other criminal activity. The Japanese health ministry told The Guardian that the corpses belonged to non-Japanese Asians that had been used in medical education or recovered from war zones for analysis in Japan. No high-level official was ever punished for the war crimes perpetrated by Unit 731. The head of the unit, Shiro Ishii, was granted immunity from war crime prosecution by U.S. forces 
after he agreed to share all his results with the Americans and keep them out of Soviet hands. Even today, the Japanese government only acknowledges the existence of Unit 731 in half measures, denying the accounts of several whistleblowers. The evidence in Toyama Park may be the key to helping both the living and the dead find peace after a truly horrible crime against humanity. Coming up, the lost spirits of Unit 731's victims make themselves known. Now back to the story. Toyama Park is beautiful during the day, lush and green, filled with flowering trees and gorgeous spots to sit, think, and just be. But when darkness falls, strange shapes float through the foliage, leading visitors astray. Known as Hitodama, they're similar in appearance to will-o'-the-wisps, or corpse candles in Western folklore. But while will-o'-the-wisps are sometimes said to be spirits, monsters, or even fairies, Hitodama have a very specific cultural meaning that stands apart from any specific religious belief. The Hitodama is believed to be a manifestation of the soul, or Reikon, that leaves the body after death. Funeral practices and other memorial rituals exist to appease the Raycon in order to keep it from haunting the living. But how do you appease a spirit when it could be any one of 250,000 people? Hagen's girlfriend was a scientist, one who only believed in what she could see, and even then she never entirely trusted her eyes. Hagen found Aurora's dedication endearing, if inconvenient at times. This was, unfortunately, one of those times. Aurora had decided that the best possible way to spend a night in Tokyo was to hunt for corpse candles in Toyama Park. Hagen tried to remind her that chasing floating lights was how things like the Blair Witch Project started, but Aurora was not to be deterred. No one can get lost in a forest in the middle of a city, she insisted. That was very similar to what those film students said before they got lost and were terrorized by weird stick dolls in the middle of the night. But Aurora could not be dissuaded. The park really was beautiful at night, though. The light pollution of Tokyo kept the stars obscured, but the shadows cast by the moon through the trees were really something. Hagen settled down on a swing on the playground with a box of Pocky, while Aurora prowled the darkness looking for mysterious lights in the woods. Hagen was halfway through the Pocky when Aurora stood up and squinted. Her prey was in sight. She dashed off into the woods, leaving Hagen to follow as best she could. At least Hagen could see what Aurora was chasing. An intermittent burst of light floated between the cherry trees, arching up the crest of the hill. Hagen called up for Aurora to double back and use the stairs for safety. Aurora grumbled something about losing the element of surprise, but she agreed. The two women climbed the stairs a few steps at a time, holding tightly to the railings just in case. Tokyo opened out before them, glittering neon and mirror black against the mist that was rising on the hill. Hagen slid her hand into Aurora's, taken in by the view. But Aurora's focus was elsewhere. She'd only seen one or two fireflies, 
If she wanted to prove that the Hidodama were only fireflies working in tandem, she needed to find them again. Aurora turned to head back down the stairs and ran into someone who looked an awful lot like Heijin. Heijin stepped between Aurora and the stranger. Aurora's Japanese was passable, but her Korean was terrible, and this woman really could have been Heijin's double. Heijin asked the woman her name, but she didn't respond. She tried other forms of address, wondering if she was out of practice. She asked the woman to step into the light so she could see her better. The woman obliged, emerging from the darkness as if she was taking off a cloak. Perhaps she really had, because she was completely naked. Her skin was burned and blistered, and her stomach was distended. Hagen realized she was pregnant, or perhaps she only had been. There was a long gash running along the bottom of her stomach, like a C-section gone horribly wrong. Her organs were ever so slightly hanging out, impossibly suspended in midair. Stunned, Hagen asked again if the stranger was all right, but the woman said nothing. Hagen squeezed Aurora's hand, wordlessly asking her to trust her. She had an idea she knew Aurora wouldn't like. This woman clearly wasn't of this world. She wasn't a will-o'-the-wisp or a hallucination. She was a Quetian. Hagen's mother had told her tales of the Quetian when she was younger. They were ghosts, spirits who stayed behind. Some Quetian were malevolent, killing others for revenge or company. But some were just lost. Hagen was sure the stranger was the latter. She greeted the other woman as formally as possible before asking how she could assist. The woman opened her mouth, but no sound came out. When Hagen leaned forward, she could see that the woman's throat had been slashed just below her chin. Someone had wanted to silence her in this life and the next. Aurora's hand was shaking in hers. Hagen squeezed it again, trying to reassure her without alarming the spirit. She told the woman she would do whatever she could, but she needed a sign of what to do or where to go. The woman stamped her foot, sending the mist swirling around them. Hagen told herself to stay strong, even when she had no idea what the woman wanted. She studied the stranger's eyes, brown, angular teardrops just like her own. The solution clicked into place. Hagen asked the woman if she should know her. The woman nodded slowly. Hagen asked her if her mother should know her. The woman nodded again. Hagen asked her if her grandmother should know her. The woman gave her another nod. Hagen found tears coming to her eyes. She told the Quetian she did know her without needing the spirit to say so. It was an understanding that ran deeper than words. She knew her without knowing. That was what family did. Aurora gasped. Hagen held her hand tightly. This time, she was the one who needed reassurance. Hagen was a second-generation Korean-American, but the traditions were strong in her family. So were the stories. Tales of heroism and pain and loss. Of ancestors taken before their time. Her grandmother always spoke of Hagen's great-aunt, Hidako 
who was swept up during a protest against the Japanese occupation, never to be seen again. Heavy, wet drops slid down Heijin's cheeks as she said her ancestor's name, repeating it like a mantra to the rhythm of her heart. I see you. I see you. I see you. The mist began to melt away, and with it, so did Hidako. Heijin and Aurora stood still as the fog cleared completely, leaving only a trio of fireflies blinking in front of them. When Hitodama appear in the Japanese Kabuki theater, they're not characters unto themselves. They're props that float around a performer portraying a yurei, or ghost, who is important to the story at hand. By their very nature, Hitodama are objects, an embodiment of the idea of life after death, not life in itself. This gives the appearance of Hitodama in Toyama Park a considerable resonance when it comes to Unit 731. The proposed numbers of the victims are staggering, quantities so large that the individuals are reduced to a list of varying nationalities and forms of torture. It's important to remember that every one of them was a person. The victims buried in Toyama Park haven't had any real funerals, their ancestors may be across the sea in China, Korea, or Russia. Their whole line may be dead. This would leave their Raycon floating, clinging to a changing world it doesn't understand. Another torment they must face, even after death. The haunting of Toyama Park is a haunting of a nation. The crumbling government of Imperial Japan, desperately trying to cover up their war crimes by burying and burning them. In many ways, they succeeded, thanks in no small part to the United States government, who gladly collected their findings and offered clemency. Many alumni of Unit 731 went on to hold major roles in the public and private sectors of post-Imperial Japan. They never faced consequences for their actions. These secrets remained hidden for decades. Without the dogged and public persistence of Toyoishi, we might never have known there were remains in Toyama Park at all. The true horror of Toyama Park isn't the comparatively quiet and even beautiful Hitodama or the hopeless weeping of a man no one can see. The horror is in what they represent, a warning that we may never fully understand. And if we don't understand, we don't learn. As a former Unit 731 medic who spoke to the New York Times said in 1995, there's a possibility this could happen again, because in a war, you have to win. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legend series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. 
I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. Hi again, it's Greg. Before I go, I wanted to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I can't recommend the show enough. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>